Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. you find us here on PRN.FM, Mondays at 10 a.m. And you can catch this show and all of our past shows on the archive. I'll tell you where to find that in a minute. On Visionaries, we talk about creativity in the arts, science, technology, culture, and spirituality. And about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energies of the cosmos. And along the way, occasionally we have guests, and we'll talk to some very interesting people, but today, no guest. I'm going to talk about an idea from a book called The Beginning of Infinity. Get to that in a minute. And we'll practice a little bit of uh, freeform radio. And for those of you who are old enough, maybe a few in the audience, to remember Gene Shepard. Gene Shepard is responsible for that movie, Gene Shepard's A Christmas Story, that we see played over and over every Christmas. And he would have a late-night talk show every week. And going into, well, Freeform, he's sort of the inventor of Freeform Radio, another figure of that time was Long John Nebel, and he would have very interesting guests on. He would have Randy the Magician, who's still with us. He'd talk about current ideas, and occasionally he'd have on people who had been on flying saucers. I'm looking forward. If anybody in the audience has been on a flying saucer, been abducted, traveled, uh, get a hold of me, John Lobel at Mac, mac.com. We'd love to have you on the show. And what I want to do first is remind you where you can find this show in a couple of days and our past shows. So you go to visionaries.podbean.com. That's visionaries.podbean is in nancy.com. And you can click and either download or stream our past shows. Just last week, I had on Phil Cousineau, screenwriter, scholar, lecturer, documentary filmmaker. And I bumped into Phil when I was involved with the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Phil wrote a book called The Hero Journey about Campbell's life and then did it as a documentary movie. And Phil does sacred travel. So if you go to philcousineau.net, you can find out when his next trip is to Paris, Ireland, Greece, and travel and see the place that the literary ideas and figures came from. Week before that, I did a show on our computational world to talk a little bit about that today. Do we live in the matrix? And I wasn't really addressing that so much as even if we take our world as real, it's not a simulation, it's one assumption. And But where does it come from? And I love to quote Stephen Wolfram, who says, I think when I find the code that generates our world, it'll be about six lines. <laughs> our world can come from six lines of uh, computer code. So a whole other way of thinking. 
I did a show on becoming creative and subject I did a book about, Visionary Creativity, How New Worlds Are Born. And one of my guests in the past on October 31st was Michael Silver, an architect. We'll have some more architects on in the future. I'm an architect. I teach architecture at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn and have some very interesting and very creative colleagues. Michael is one of them, and he is interested in consciousness as well as in architecture. Go to his studio, there are little robots walking around carrying bricks. He's got laser cutters and 3D printers, and so this is kind of an emerging world of these kinds of people, and we find a lot of them in architecture. So Michael is a good example. Michael, for example, spent time at the University of Michigan on a fellowship looking at how manufacturing is going to be revolutionized. Eventually, we'll see, for example, ceramic automobile engines. And he'd spend time at, say, Lockheed and see how they're making business jets by taking a huge cigar-shaped mold of the cockpit and then winding carbon fiber around it and putting it in an oven. (laughs) And eventually we'll be making our buildings that way. Carbon fiber is really strong, much lighter than steel, and it doesn't rust. So, you know, we're in the midst of these revolutions in how we make things, how we live. We had on Bill Catavalis, who is uh, talking about wild things in architecture. Bill is a young 92 and was doing this stuff way back in the 50s. He worked with foams, with organic materials that have memory. Imagine uh, your living room is totally empty box, and it, but has a very thick floor, and in the floor are buried these forms like tulip, giant tulip bulbs. And when you want to sit down, this tulip bulb grows out of the floor, and there's a chair. And then when you're done, it retreats back into the floor. So All of your furniture and your functions of your shower would come out and envelop you, clean you, go back in. So Bill thinks that way. I did an article in the uh, Village Voice years ago about his 240-mile-high building being built from (laughs) orbit downward. So Bill thinks that way, and you'll enjoy listening to the show with him. I had on John David Ebert colleague of mine. We'll have him on again. And Ebert is one of these hyper literary persons who reads everything. So he and I do a website together. We haven't been keeping it up to date, but it's called cinemadiscourse.com and very interesting in-depth reviews of movies, looking at them as sort of uh, a form of literature and with the date of no, with the death of no relation, Roger Ebert, there's kind of a dearth of intelligent movie reviews. So we wanted to pick up on that, have a website that does that. And we haven't been keeping it current, but you'll find reviews of the classics there and sort of how to become movie literate. So I strongly recommend that, cinemadiscourse.com. We'll have John David Ebert on again shortly to talk about post-structuralist thinkers. So if you've been in academia, you might have encountered this very annoying stuff. So we'll talk about what that is. Uh, 
I did a show a while back on technological optimism. We'll touch a little bit on that today. And we're, a lot of the technology that we have in the world today is polluting and destructive of the environment. You'll find this radio station, prn.fm, rich with information about that. So we all know about that. But what about the things technology is bringing us and is promising to bring us? And how is it changing our world? So I'm in a sort of a seminar group at Columbia University, and our monthly seminars have been technologically very pessimistic. So I asked if I could do a presentation on technological optimism, and they let me do it. Previous to that, on October 3rd, you'll find my interview with Natasha Vita Moore, who is the poster woman for transhumanism. And so Natasha did a project a while back in transforming her body and imagining online rebuilding herself as a transhuman. Transhumanism, to oversimplify, what happens when we start implanting the chips into our skull and they integrate with our brain so that we become a different species? Before that, we spoke on September 26. You can look that one up about Joseph Campbell. And that's a terrific show. It's been repeated a couple of times on the station. So if you haven't caught it, definitely go look that one up. You can stream it or download it. And I worked with Joseph Campbell over the years. And with his death, a foundation was set up to manage his literary estate and to propagate his approach to mythology. And so we interviewed Bob Walter, who's the president of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. You can find information on that at jcf.org. And, oh, just going back, Natasha Vita Moore, natasha.cc, you'll find her website. And uh, John David Ebert, uh, if you look at culturaldiscourse.com, you'll find his material. I had on in mid-September Louis Arana, and he's an artificial intelligence expert. And <clears throat> a while back, there was a competition for the best AI, and he beat out Google. So that's impressive. He now is working for a... Japanese robot company doing the AI for their robots. And it's L-U-I-S-A-R-A-N-A. -A -A, and you'll find him at, wow, uh, SeriousWonder.com slash robots without border. Well, anyway, just look up Louis Arana on Facebook. You can hunt him down. And I haven't spoken to him recently, but I've been following him on Facebook, and he's been describing what's coming up with his Japanese robot company, what they're working on. So that's one of the great things about our world today. You can follow all these people, see what they're up to. So those are some of our back shows. Strongly recommend them. And while we're at it, a little bit about me. My name's John LaBelle. You'll find me, oh, johnlabelle.com. <laughs> That's a good place to go. And I've been teaching architecture at Pratt Institute for over 45 years. 
And I'm watching, you know, how the world changes, what my younger colleagues are up to, and it keeps me young. So, for example, I teach the history survey from caves to today in four semesters, and there's a team of 10 people on that do this teaching, and we're always getting new, young, just out of their PhD program instructors. So it gives me a chance to keep up on current new scholarship. So... When I studied Vitruvius, you know, we were told it's firmness, commodity, delight. The building has to stand up, be useful, and uh, provide pleasure. Well, my younger colleagues have actually read all of Vitruvius in Latin and go into it in much more depth. So I'm able to keep up on the new scholarship, and I notice that there are just ways in which my school just is not keeping up. Uh, by keeping up, I'll give an example. So actually, I was planning to talk about something else today. Maybe we'll get to it, the beginning of infinity. But before we do that, something to think about. You might have heard of the Bauhaus. So the Bauhaus was actually a technical high school in Germany that Walter Gropius converted to be the major force in design in the 20th century. So they had some architecture. They had a lot of art. Uh, Kandinsky and Paul Clay were there. Uh, Laszlo Moholy-Nagy was there. But it was mainly teaching industrial design. Now, before that, we were in a world of craft. So if someone you needed a teapot, somebody would hammer copper and make a teapot, and you would use that teapot. And now we're in, we then, 19... Night, about 1910, 1915, we're entering into a world of mass production, industrial mass production. And so <clears throat> they were mass producing teapots and they were pretty ugly and not very well made. So Walter Gropius's idea was instead of teaching handcraft and painting, what if we teach industrial design, how to design a teapot? Well, how would you do that? You'd start with the basics. All form is made with point. You move a point, you get a line. You move the line, you get a plane. You move the plane, you get a solid. And that solid will be, have color and texture. So if you study point, line, plane, solid, color, texture, and then it'll be made out of wood, metal, glass, or cloth. Uh, plastics were not common back then. But they, that's what the students at the Bauhaus would study. And then they made these beautiful lamps and teapots and chairs that we use to this day, 100 years old, and we're still using this stuff. And we still consider it starkly, beautifully modern. So really incredible experience. But the purpose of the Bauhaus was to train people to make things, not that you would use, you wouldn't use the teapot that was made by a Bauhaus student, but rather that would be a prototype that an industry would then mass produce. And you would use the mass produced teapot, but it would have a beautiful design. So to this day, we uh, very much admire our iPhones. While I'm talking, let me just silence mine. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, and that's made in that tradition so that something that's a common, manufactured, economical, affordable thing, like a Michael Graves teapot that you can get at Target, 
is also a high work of art, it's, but it's mass-produced instead of handcrafted. Well, that was the idea of the Bauhaus, and it transformed our world and produced much of the what we consider good design of our modern world today. Only thing is, that was 100 years ago. So you might have been watching, uh, if you watch TV, I'm always surprised to how many of my colleagues, I don't have a television. Well, how do you, you miss the Sopranos. <laughs> One of the greatest dramas of all time. Anyway, or uh, House of Cards, right? We're in the middle of that. Oh, let me just uh, stop a moment and uh, put out a phone number. So if anybody wants to call in on anything we're talking about today, which seems to be everything, it's 888-874-4888. So call-ins welcome on anything we're talking about, 888-874-4888. So back to... uh, you're watching TV, you might have noticed these commercials about General Electric. And remember their ads? They used to advertise on all the Sunday news shows about we bring good things to life. Well, now the ads are about how they're a digital industrial company. So what does that mean? And GE makes windmills, gas turbines, locomotives, They've gotten rid of, you might still buy a washing machine or refrigerator that says GE, but they don't make that anymore. They sold that division. So they make uh, big, heavy industrial stuff, and everything they make, every individual windmill has a twin in the cloud, a digital twin that is, uh, well, let's see how to put it, is models engineeringly how the actual one works. And if the main bearing on the actual one heats up, it communicates that to the digital twin. And then the digital twin checks with all the other digital twins and says, hey, my main bearing's heating up. Are you having the same problem? When does that tend to happen? And then that gets communicated to the engineers and then they address the problem if the artificial intelligence can't figure it out itself. So just last week, I spent a week in San Francisco at the the GE annual conference where they, it's called Minds and Machines, or Minds Plus Machines. If you put that in Google, it'll come right up. And you can see the talks from the 2016 conference, it was just last week, and also from the previous five years, they've done these conferences. And it's just mind-blowing stuff. They make medical devices. So whether it's pacemakers or uh, MRI machines and, and what they're, how they're totally reimagining how all of this stuff works. And so they have, for example, a digital twin of the Johns Hopkins Hospital that has a lot of GE equipment. I'm looking at it and saying, when are they going to make a digital twin of me? (laughs) You know, so it'll know, uh, are you doing your exercise? Are you climbing the stairs? I don't see you've climbed the stairs this this week. What have you been up to? Uh, The digital twin will know. So anyway. We are entering into the world of the digital industrial revolution. And 
at the Internet of Things, which I discover is capital I, small o, capital T. And so that's how that's abbreviated. So I, that, I learned that in my week at the GE conference. So I'm just always interested in what's going on. And then so Pratt Institute, where I teach, is in a large part of design school, whether it's industrial design or graphic design or architectural design. And we've got to prepare for this new world. So, for example, um, our buildings are going to have digital twins that are tracking everything that it, it's doing, you know, what the air conditioning is doing, the plumbing is doing, alert maintenance if there's a problem. So, anyway, keeping up on that stuff. And I've noticed a kind of a reluctance of my school to, like, respond to that. Academia is very conservative. Uh, it's not into, you know, it's not Silicon Valley. <laughs> it's not entrepreneurial. But I've been posting a set of memos about how education should be rethought for our emerging digital industrial age. You'll find those at johnlobel.com. And then I'm kind of schizophrenic where to put my different blogging. So my blogging on creativity is at visionarycreativity.com. And my mostly about me is at johnlobel.com. You'll find PDFs of my books and articles and uh, stuff like that. And you can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter. So that's me. And so now to today's show. And I just finished a book, actually for the second time, The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. Now, I have to confess, who can read a book these days? <laughs> I mean, there's five Big Bang Theories to watch reruns every night. <laughs> who has time to read a book? So I, I, uh, I listen to it on audiobooks, I got to confess. And... I read, you know, I'm I'm in the, whether I'm walking around or on the subway or going to school or whatever, uh, I I have time to do that, and so you know, listening to a book is different from reading it. I don't think you retain it as well. You know, it's a whole different mental set. You know, it takes us to Marshall McLuhan. The ears report to a totally different part of the brain than the eyes report to, and it functions totally differently. So with that in mind, I, I just finished re-listening to it yesterday, and I thought maybe I'd talk about it today. The Beginning of Infinity, Explanations That Transform the World. So now, anybody in the audience read Beginning of Infinity? Raise your hands, right? <laughs> it's my habit from teaching. David Deutsch's previous book is The Fabric of Reality. And this follows on to that. So let's just look at, um, first of all, what is a book? And then we'll look at who David Deutsch is, and then we'll look at this book. So a book, a real book, not a contrived book for people to buy as a holiday gift, can take years to write. You know, it's, it's really something that emerges with the Enlightenment and a kind of individuality that comes about in Western culture, where there's a person, an individuated person who is interested in something and looks into it and invests maybe a year, two, three, four years into 
really understanding that and then wants to convey what they have discovered to other individual people. You see the whole um, struggle about this in from going from Socrates to Plato, where Plato wrote down things Socrates did not. Remember, Socrates was against writing. Why was he against writing? Hands up. Two reasons, right? One was it'll undermine memorization. The youth will no longer be able to memorize. <laughs> and boy, talk about cultural differences. This doesn't happen today anymore, but some years ago, I had an Islamic student who I said, okay, uh, next next week, chapter four. He comes in and executes that was a lot to memorize. <laughs> well, that was their culture. Not anymore, but, you know, that the totally different uh, approach to the material. And the Greeks memorized. That's how you knew something. Well, uh, and so, but Socrates' other worry was you can't convey an idea in writing because you have to check with the subject who's receiving what you're saying. Do they get the point? And so he preferred dialogue. So Plato tried to reproduce that dialogue, that back and forth in writing. So Plato didn't just write it down, but he made it in the form of dialogues, anticipating the reader's questions so that we could hone in on the ideas. Well, uh, so an individual person comes up with insights and wants to convey them to other individual people and then maps out how they are going to do that. How do you draw the person in? I remember when I read Sigmund Freud's Introduction to Psychoanalysis. It opens with a chapter on what we call the a Freudian slip. <clears throat> in other words, when you say something that, um, oh, what did you say? You know, instead of saying, uh, I drank the milk, you say, uh, I drank the gin. Uh, so now there's something going on about alcoholism in your mind. And that's a Freudian slip that reveals what's going on in your mind. And so he has a whole chapter on that. And you get sort of drawn in. And then you realize, oh, my God, in accepting this, I've accepted the notion that there's an unconscious, which was Freud's revolutionary discovery. In other words, the idea that there's this whole teeming world of stuff going on below our awareness, the unconscious. And that's how he introduces it in this seductive way. So you find some way, some device for communicating to others your insights. So that's a book. Do we still really think that way today? So that's something to think about in our electronic age as we become uh, not literate, uh, but, you know, embedded in electronicy instead of literacy, including me who can't read a book. You know, I have to listen to it on tape. Fortunately, more and more books are available on tape. So the um, beginning of infinity. So now who's David Deutsch? And... Uh, everybody following online here, uh, open up Google and go to Wikipedia, right? Pop in David Deutsch. And David Deutsch is a physicist and a computer scientist at Oxford and very, very interesting person. 
he's sort of the pioneer of uh, quantum computing. The idea that, okay, um, so just real quick what quantum computing is. In classic computing, you have bits, zeros and ones, and you're able to manipulate them through algorithms. And so you can encode information into these zeros and ones. You can manipulate them through logic gates that if one, you know, if this, then that. If this is true, then that will happen. If we accept this, that won't happen. If we accept A and B, you get C. If you accept A but not B, you get D. So you can make all these rules, and you can implement these rules in silicon. So when these things happen, the switching will happen. Well, what a com quantum computer does is it uses the fact that there are times when uh, a subatomic particle, an electron, will be in many places at the same time. And it doesn't choose to then be in one spot until we look at it. Remember Schrodinger's cat. The cat is both dead and alive until we open the box and look at it. I don't know why I had to pick on cats. But anyway, the, since a, these qubits, quantum bits, can be in many places at one time, they can do huge amounts of work in one step instead of to look at a thousand different Oh, names in a telephone book, it can, instead of a thousand very fast steps in a classic computer, a quantum computer could do it in one step. And so they can be billions of times faster than classic computers. We have yet to make really capable ones, but they're very seriously working on it now. And so the idea of just how you would do this, is this possible, how you would do that? David Deutsch is a pioneer of working that out. And he says now, you know, when I did that, I knew everything was going on in quantum computing. And now there's so much going on, I can barely follow it. But anyway, that's his day job. And then he's been thinking about what is reality. And he wrote this book, The Fabric of Reality, in which he said... Um, what is, what is reality fundamentally made of? And he said there's four fundamental things. And he's avoiding a reductive approach. Instead, he says, let's take an interpretive approach and let's back up. Uh, David Deutsch is a champion of what's called Hugh Everett's Many Worlds Interpretation of Quantum Physics. And that means, okay, the electron is in, let's just say, two different places, and when we look at it, it chooses which one to be in. But before that, it's truly not in any one location. The <laughs> Scientific American in the 1950s tried to, you know, deny this, to say it's really somewhere, we just don't know where it is. But now they've pretty well established, nope, <laughs> it's, it really isn't anywhere until we pin it down. Well, what, what does that mean? How does it do that? Well, there are several major interpretations. One of them is that when you force the electron to make a decision, is it going to go on path A or path B, the universe splits 
And we now have two parallel universes. In one, the electron took path A, and in the other one, it took path B. So this is the many worlds or parallel universe interpretation of quantum theory. And that's David Deutsch's position. He's sort of the most prominent promoter of that position. So he says, quantum computers gain their prodigious power by harnessing their siblings in parallel worlds. <laughs> so that's the way people are thinking these days. Anyway, so he says there are four fundamental, oh, what should we say, um, qualities that make up reality. And number one is Hugh Everett's Many Worlds Interpretation of Quantum Physics. And this is fundamental to how he understands reality. And then this gets really weird, right? I mean, what? They're infinite. Electrons are splitting up all the time. So there's, inf well, I don't know if it's infinite or it's just a lot, like a lot, lot, lot of these parallel universes. Can we communicate with them? Well, we can in quantum computers. And what's the implication of that? Very weird stuff. Number two is Karl Popper's epistemology. So <clears throat> it's always been not really clear. What, what is science and how does it work? What's unique about science? And, well, you know, science is rational. It uses the scientific method. But what does that mean? And <coughs> scientific method, well, you know, could mean this, could mean that. And Popper finally pinned it down where he said, a scientific statement is one that can be refuted. So if I say there are ethereal creatures in this room right now that have no interaction with matter, well, that you can't disprove that. So a scientific statement has to be disprovable. And unless it can, you know, otherwise you can say anything you want. It doesn't mean anything. So this really changed how people approach science. It's only in the past 50 years that he's proposed these ideas. So previously, if you said all swans are white, everybody would rush out and look for white swans. and say, yep, I found 10 more. I found 100 more. This must prove it. I found a thousand more white swans. And now if you say all, all swans are white, some, everybody runs out and looks for a black swan. And you only have to find one to disprove the statement. So this really accelerated an understanding of what science is and what constitutes a scientific statement. So um, that's the second strand of the fabric of reality. The third one is Alan Turing's theory of computation. And that's the notion of what's called a Turing machine, which means that a Turing, any Turing machine can emulate any other Turing machine. In other words, anything that could be done on a supercomputer, you, you can do on your smartphone. It may take a lot longer, but they're universal. It's called a universal Turing machine. So the universality, which means a computer could emulate reality. We could be in the matrix. And then finally, uh, 
Dawkins' refinement of Darwin's theory of evolution and the notion of selection and synthesis. So, and the replication of memes, the replication of ideas. So he put these four ideas together in his book, The Fabric of Reality, to launch a totally new notion of reality. So in the beginning of Finity, he goes further and does, um, does something different. So I'm going to take a break now, and we'll be back in a few minutes, and we'll see what the beginning of Infinity is about. And uh, in the meantime, go look it up on Wikipedia. This is PRN, Progressive Radio Network. Hi, everybody. I am Karen Hartglass, the host of It's All About Food. Join me every Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time or catch all of my shows in the archives. You can find my archive programs at the Progressive Radio Network website or you can call my personal archive phone number to hear the most recent five episodes of It's All About Food. Here's the number. one 701 719 0885. Here it is again. 1-701-719-0885. Learn about how we can solve many of the world's problems today and do it deliciously here on It's All About Food. I'm Beattie Combs-Rettos, host of Ask Beattie. I'm a psychotherapist, I'm a sex therapist, and on my show, we talk about love, relationships, and sex. You can also call me and ask me any questions about any problems or issues that you may be struggling with. So join me live every Monday afternoon from 3 to 4 Eastern Standard Time, or you can listen to all of my Ask Beattie shows in the PRN archives by dialing one 701 Does the current dire state of the economy have you totally upset and confused? There are solutions to our financial ills, but first we have to get a handle on what's really going on. I'm Ellen Brown, author of Web of Debt and a new radio show host here on PRN-FM inviting you to join me and my co-host, Walt McCree, as we look behind the curtain at the shadowy world of global monetary control and what we can do to break ourselves free. The show is called It's Our Money, and it airs on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern. We'll be talking with experts in the world of monetary policy as well as with people who are actively working to reclaim control of public money to benefit the public interest. So please join us for It's Our Money, Wednesdays on PRN, FM, or by podcast. So welcome back. This is John LaBelle. The show is Visionaries. We're on PRN.FM. Every Monday, 10 a.m., plus you can go to the archives, visionaries.podbean, B-E-A-N, dot com. 
and see our past shows. You can stream them or download them. And we're talking today about David Deutsch's The Beginning of Infinity, but we're doing freeform radio, so <laughs> totally random free association, which brings us to the Needham question. So what's the Needham question? And the Needham question, so um, Joseph Needham was a British scholar and who fell in love at, at Cambridge. He fell in love with China and spent time there and eventually produced a, an encyclopedia, multi-volumed encyclopedia of ancient Chinese science and technology. And he became quite an expert on this material, which led to the question, if you go before 1400, China was well in advance of the West in size, wealth, technology, military power, uh, trade, culture, on and on. And then in the 1400s, the West began its leap ahead and China began to stagnate. So why? Particularly if you look at early inventions in China, the abacus, the shadow clock, flying machines, giant kites or gliders that people could fly on. Uh, the compass, gunpowder, papermaking, printing, movable type. So why, why did China stagnate and the West leapt ahead? Needham thought it had to do with Confucianism and Taoism in which China saw science and technology as integrated with the rest of culture, whereas the West separated it out. And which is a whole interesting story in itself that um, science sort of avoided human beings, psychology, stuff like that, and it would look at anatomy, but it stayed away from psychology until recently in sort of a deal with the church. The church would deal with spirit and the mind, and science would deal with the material world, and then the church would leave, leave it alone. And that led to a rapid advancements in science. Well, that's one possibility, but I think there's something else going on. And we look at the story of Admiral He, and there's good scholarship now coming out about this, and you'll find it in, um, again, in Wikipedia, but there are a couple books on it, uh, Zhang He. And he was a Chinese admiral in the early 1400s, built a fleet of giant ocean-going ships, 15 times the tonnage of Columbus's ships with triple hulls, farms, farm animals, nine masts, and with 28,000 sailors and dozens and dozens of ships, giant treasure ships and accompanying ships made ocean voyages all around the world. The speculations to whether or not he got to the Americas. But what happened? How come the West conquered the world and China did not? And the one answer is that China was not outgoing. Uh, the emperor found out about Admiral He's ships and destroyed them and destroyed records of the voyages. So the, there's something different about the West, not only than China, but all other cultures. And if we think about it, Okay, there have been 
remarkable achievements in a lot of cultures. You think of ancient Rome, hot and cold running water, sewers, uh, vast manufacturing. Must be some way that a million people got breakfast every morning in the city of Rome. And so a lot of things are very advanced. But if we go to Europe in, oh, pick a year, 1500, and compare it with Rome in 300 or Thebes in Egypt in uh, 1500 BC, the Europe was very backward in 1400, even 1500. By 16, 1700, Europe had left, leapt ahead. So what was it that the world did not advance very much? Say, well, look at the developments in Europe by 1400, 1500. Yeah, but Rome had done that a thousand years earlier. And Egypt had done a lot of that 3,000 years earlier. And what happened was that something happened in Europe in the... Oh, you have to pick a date, but starts in the mid-1400s and leaps ahead in the mid-1700s that we call the Enlightenment. And David Deutsch talks about that in his book, The Beginning of Infinity, and said there have been, he identifies three Enlightenments, and that of classic Greece, and we think of Plato and Aristotle and, and the mathematicians, etc., that of Florence in the 1400s, but those two were short-lived. And then we get the European Enlightenment of the mid-1700s, and so far, that one stuck. That one's still with us. And hopefully, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if we revert to the suppression of uh, individual thought, creativity, etc. But that's what Deutsch identifies as the beginning of infinity. So by infinity, he means that we open up to unlimited possibilities and so that the human enterprise, as we see it today, is infinite in its potential reach so that you could say, well, what happens when we have artificial intelligence and it's a thousand times you know, better than our intelligence? What's, what's going to happen to the world? And he says, that can't happen. It, our intelligence is already infinite. Any problem that can be conceived can be approached. It might take a while. It might be difficult. But if it's solvable, it will be solved. And if it's not solvable, you know, you can't go faster than the speed of light. There's some laws of physics that uh, prohibit certain things, but if it's permitted, it will be doable. So that's his position. He says, so what came about? What happened that launched this radical change? And when I say radical change, you know, I teach history, and I, I do a course in non-Western cultures and non-Western architecture. We look at shamanism. We look at China, Japan, India, Buddhism. Look at shamanism. And I studied with Michael Harner. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of into shamanism. But you look at the evidence from this caves of Lascaux of shamanic practices. And then you look at contemporary shamans today 
and we see same practices, same beliefs, same system of reality. For 15,000 years, it doesn't change. How'd they do that? <laughs> and the answer is by being very repressive. Anybody who comes up with a new idea gets stomped. And you look at, <clears throat> for example, Egyptian, Egyptian murals on tombs. And you go back to the time of the pyramids. You look at the murals. And then you look at murals at the time of Ramses II. And then you look at Egyptian murals at the time of Cleopatra. Well, an Egyptologist can tell the difference, but I can't. They all look pretty much the same. That's 2,000 years of their art styles not changing. Our art doesn't go unchanged for 20 years. And so, you know, somebody must have come along and said, let's, you know, let's try cubism here. <laughs> well, that guy, we haven't, we don't know about him because he didn't survive. <laughs> they make sure of that. So cultures historically have been set up to repress creativity, to stop change. That's how cultures work. And the idea of permitting change is something radically new. And the idea of encouraging creativity, to the extent we do it, because there's plenty of repression of creativity, there's plenty of, uh, you know, stuff that should be happening that's not happening. But to some extent, we allow creativity. And how'd that happen? What came about? How'd they do that? That is the uh, unique discovery of these three enlightenments. And the enlightenment that's with us to this day from the 1700s to today is the one that David Deutsch is talking about. So there's something unique happened that we permit this creativity, this bringing about something totally new. And what it was fundamental to how we did that is what Deutsch calls the uh, adoption of good explanations. So that everybody knew the seasons changed. They observed that. We have spring, summer, fall, winter comes around again. Why, why does that happen? Well, the ancient Greeks, not the Plato and Aristotle Greeks, but way before that, said, well, you know, um, Persephone's uh, daughter got kidnapped and had to spend... Um, you know, ate six pomegranate seeds. So uh, Hades said she has to be with me for six months of the year. And uh, Persephone is unhappy. And therefore, the sun is dimmed and it's cold and things don't grow. Well, is that a good explanation? Let's test it out. Suppose we find out that on the other side of the equator, the seasons are opposite. Uh, that that explanation doesn't work then. So good explanations, explanations that can be tested, that can be tried, that can be adjusted, that can be adapted, that can be updated. 
And something as simple as that, something as simple as good explanations that reveal to us how and why things come about. So with that, we go into a world of scientific achievement. But then the Enlightenment spreads to human culture as well. And to the extent that we are faithful to the Enlightenment and good explanations, we continually allow them to be updated. We find that some previous explanation, some previous approach hasn't been working, hasn't been doing a good job, hasn't been doing what it's supposed to do. And then we're willing to say, okay, let's uh, rethink that one. And let's see where it goes from there. So strongly recommended. The beginning of infinity and... We'll report back next week. Anybody reads it, call in next week. <laughs> Let me know what you think. And then just a few other thoughts and some ideas we'll pursue for future shows. You know, I sort of think about the world I live in, the world of um, you know what I'm interested in. And fortunately, we have the Internet. So, you know, there's some websites I follow. I'm an academic, so <clears throat> I follow... InsideHigherEducation.com, and it's InsideHigherEd.com, I think. And so, yeah, I get that news and I participate in it. But also, I check out every day KurzweilAI.com. So that's Ray Kurzweil's site, K-U-R-Z-W-E-I-L-A-I for Artificial Intelligence.com. I'm sorry, .net. And... <clears throat> Keeps us up on all kinds of great stuff. I mean, really weird, mind-blowing stuff going on out there. And like quantum computing and playing around with individual particles. Let me just um, see if I can find... No, I'm not going to find it right off. But anyway, go to Kurzweil AI... .net. You can keep up on what's going on. And a few other things just to give you my bibliography besides the beginning of infinity and the um, fabric of reality. We can always reread Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man by Marshall McLuhan. So I discovered that my younger colleagues have all heard of McLuhan, but no, none of them have read him. And the McLuhan's really wild because in 1964, he describes the whole thing. You know, he describes Facebook, chat rooms, um, Twitter. Uh, it's all there in his book 30, 40 years before it actually happened. He saw the whole thing. And the key to the how does he do that? And so the key is to identify the underlying pattern. Uh, understanding media is maybe a little bit difficult to read. All the key ideas are available in another book by him called The Medium is the Massage. Not message, but massage. And it was a typo they decided to keep by Marshall McLuhan, Quentin Fiore, and Jerome Agel. Jerome Agel is this really interesting guy. He identified in the 60s 
the interesting people, and he said, like Buckminster Fuller and Marshall McLuhan, he says, you've written these great books, but no one can read them. Uh, work with me, and we'll do a popular brief version of your book. And they did, and he did a whole series of books that present, he did I Seem to Be a Verb with, um, with Buckminster Fuller. And the medium is the massage, and that's totally readable. You can go through the whole thing an hour and get the point. And then, uh, oh, there's some classics we can always look at. I've mentioned quantum theory, and <clears throat> uh, strongly recommend Quantum Reality Beyond the New Physics by Nick Herbert. So there's another one we should know about it. So wrapping up, uh, today we did a little bit of free-form radio looked at The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch and did a lot of digressions. This is John Lobel. This is Visions every Monday at 10 a.m. And go to visionaries.podbean.com to get uh, this and all of our other past shows. <laughs>